Well, uh, welcome to the LSE. Uh, the hashtag for this event, if any of you are tweeting, is uh, hashtag LSE Zone. Welcome to this Forum for European Philosophy Dialogue on being in the zone, spontaneity and mental discipline in sport and beyond. Perhaps on this occasion it should be cricket, sport and beyond, which is an interesting sequence as I'll hope to suggest in a moment. My name is Simon Glendinning and I'm the director of the Forum for European Philosophy and I am the former captain of Brightwell Come Sotwell Cricket Club and still its regular opening bowler and occasional opening bat. Let's stick with that theme for a moment. <laughs> the first written record of a Brightwell Village cricket team playing a match is in a local Parsons scrapbook. He was from the neighbouring village of Morton, and the match report reads, We had two games with Brightwell. In the first match, Morton beat. In the second, Brightwell beat. <laughs> That was in 1858, and cricket has been played in Brightwell ever since. The parson wrote the entry because he was worried that the games, these first games, might occasion drunkenness and disorder, and his report suggests that apparently not. Now, here the LSE is a famously international school, and cricket is an international sport. However, beyond the family of cricket-playing nations, I do know that the game can seem to outsiders both obscure and somehow ridiculous. On the other hand, for most cricket-playing nations, and certainly this country, the rootedness of our identities is somehow fundamentally inflected by the cultures, plural, of cricket. The most famous and obvious example of this is probably the phrase, it's not cricket, it's not cricket. An idiom which reaches way beyond unsportsmanlike behaviour and into a general dimension of something's unacceptability. A failure somehow in the entire ethos of something. For some, the sense of the impropriety involved when it's not cricket can come almost to define that undefinable sense of an entire national ethos itself. The modes of our being at home together. This is shown in the ways we relate to each other and perhaps above all the ways we relate to visitors and outsiders. So let me say tonight, even if you're not from one of the cricketing nations of the world, even for those who do not play cricket, you are welcome. Well, I begin with this, not only to welcome you all here, but to attest to the power of cricket to reach beyond itself. That's why I said perhaps this should have been cricket, sport and beyond. This capacity to reach beyond itself, to reach, as it was once put beautifully, beyond a boundary. How its place in culture means that it serves in a curious way not just as one sample of sport and beyond, but a kind of lucid example, the best example, perhaps. 
And it's in view of his truly exemplary appreciation of motivation, both conscious and unconscious, in cricket players, cricket players of enormous promise, and in view of his own strategic and tactical brilliance as a captain in cricket, and then later as a cricket writer of the highest rank, and as a psychoanalyst who has been able to take this talent beyond cricket, it is in view of all of this that it's my truly great honour to welcome Michael Brearley to be with us tonight. All the more so because in the days before he became one of the greatest England captains of all time, with an extraordinary record of only four defeats in the 31 test matches under his captaincy, in the days before his career in cricket took off, Mike was pursuing a career as a lecturer in philosophy at the University of Leeds. So, Michael, thank you for agreeing to join us here tonight. And to accompany Michael to the wicket this evening, I'm also delighted to welcome David Papineau, Professor of Philosophy at King's College London, himself a keen cricketer and born in Italy, raised in South Africa, so he could certainly have qualified to play cricket for England. <laughs> hmm. Alas, however, it was not to be. And so we have on stage this evening only one first-class cricketer, but we have two first-class minds. So please, in the ethos of cricketing fairness, welcome both our guests for this evening, David Papineau and Michael Brill. Thank you very much for those kind words. Now, the way we're going to do it is like this. Well, it's fairly unplanned, but Michael's going to talk for something like 15 minutes, and then I'm going to talk for something like that, and then we might all talk among ourselves for a little bit, but we want to leave at least uh, half the time for general discussion from the floor, so that's, uh, that's the batting order. Uh, so, Michael, over to you. Thank you. <clears throat> Can you hear me all right in the back? Is that all right? Um, these really are notes, and uh, I come in the spirit of, of listening to you and David uh, as much as talking to you. Um, I wanted to start by mentioning one difference between being in the zone, as I understand it, and being on form. And I think that being in the zone is more like a feeling, and being on form is more toughly realistic. I mean, you could be or think you were in the zone when you were actually not playing particularly well. It could be a kind of illusion. Um, it could be manic or obsessional. It could be, there could be a collusion between two people in which they both think they're in the zone, but they're both talking a great deal of nonsense. Um, I also wanted to mention, as just a starting example, Tony Gregg... Um, who captained England before I did, saying to me once that there were times in test matches where he felt in the zone, and by that he meant that he, everything was together. Um, he was able to bat with freedom, but also with total discipline. And I'll come back to that notion later. 
And I also wanted to mention a story that Ken Barrington, the, the very, very fine England and Surrey batsman, once said. He said he once scored, had five innings in which he never got to five in any one of the innings. And people said he was out of form. But he said, I haven't been long, in long enough to know whether I'm out of form or not. <laughs> so what I want to talk about covers a range of, of phenomena, of situations. There's the individual sportsman, the batsman, the fielder, bowler. I'm not, yes, I'm mentioning the bowler, but not very much. The batsman or the fielder. There's uh, being in a team, which is in the zone or on the go. There's being a captain. There's also being a psychoanalyst and sometimes feeling in that kind of a state. And there's, being a, and there's being a patient, which I've also had quite a bit of experience of. And there too, one can be both on form and in the zone, not quite the same things. But if, you think, if I think of examples, I mentioned Tony Gregg and the batting. I remember a couple of times catching difficult catches that I had to run to and dive and catch. And having the feeling, as I was running to that ball, that there was no doubt about the fact I was going to catch that catch. Now, of course, that could be an illusion and there could have been many other occasions when I had that feeling and didn't catch it after all. But there was something about those occasions which stay in the mind. Um, being captain, I wanted to mention rare. These are rare events for me. But I wanted to make a comparison between being a bushman hunter and being a captain on just rare occasions. That there were... Uh, it happened twice in a match with the very fine South African cricketer, another one, David, um, who, uh, Clive Rice, who was uh, an all-rounder but an excellent batsman. He was playing against, we were playing Middlesex against Nottinghamshire, Nottingham, and he was their best player. And he uh, was getting in, and I could see that he was just beginning to, and you see, I start to do things with my hands and my body. He started to, he was looking to force the ball off the back foot. And the ball was a bit of bounce of the pitch. It was a good pitch. But he was, he was, and I, thought, I sort of entered into this movement of his. And I sensed that if he didn't get it quite right, it's going to go quite hard. And I reckon about there. And about ten yards deeper than wide, fourth slip or gully would, fine gully would be. And I put Clive Radley ten yards deeper and finer than he would normally be in the gully, say. And a few balls later it went straight to him. And the second innings of that match, and I don't want you to think this happened very often, but occasionally it did. The second innings of this match, he was also getting in, and he started, and he had a certain sort of flicking shot around the leg stump like this. And again, I sort of felt myself playing this shot, or being him, and then I sensed that if he got it pretty well, but not quite in the middle, it was going to go to deep, backward, short leg. And what happened? He was caught, Roland Butcher, bold, Simon Hughes, or somebody, for about 20 now, those were moments that stay in the mind, too, I can tell you. They're very rewarding moments and very interesting. And then I've seen a film on the Bushman who, in following deer, would become the deer. So they would see the track of the deer in the dust, and they would then be the deer, and you could see them be the deer, and they would jump, and they would be able to say, the deer's probably, they would, probably there, and they would follow the track, perhaps for ten miles, on foot until they wore the deer down but just on foot and there's something about thinking your way into the being of an opponent and being able to then stand back from that and do something about it um, 
psychoanalysis. Um, oh, the team, the team in the field. I mean, I think you can a football team. You might see it in, in, in with great clarity that for a period of a game, or perhaps even for most of a game, they play together and they play with a sort of instinctive joy and precision and freedom, and they're all in it together. And they can pass. They sense where each other's going. They see the opportunities, and they're in the zone, and they're on form, and it's a wonderful feeling. Um, psychoanalysis. Um, the psychoanalyst Wilfred Bion once said, uh, once spoke about the aim of the psychoanalyst as being without memory and desire, or he may have said without memory or desire. And by that he meant um, being able to think without consciously trying to remember what the patient has said and without having any particular aim for an outcome but really being utterly open to what comes at you and again that's something you can imagine a batsman having at the best of his form he's open to what comes at him his mind isn't cluttered up by too much conscious thinking and I know David's going to be talking about that uh, later and even for the patient, well, I don't say even for the patient, for the patient too, there are times when uh, the patient feels free. Uh, Freud had the phrase free association, which means you follow the thoughts of your own mind and you don't hold back for uh, the conventional reasons of social politeness or etiquette or unpleasantness or indecency or any of the reasons that one normally holds back. And that the patient may feel very free in that way and not in a way that we might think of as manic or as playing a game, but actually living in themselves and expressing what comes to mind in a full and more or less flowing way. So what does it feel like to be in the zone? First, I've mentioned joy. I think rapture. I think total absorption. Think of a child at play. Think of Tony Gregg scoring his 100, maybe in a very long time, by the way, not necessarily with great dashing freedom. It may be, but maybe not. Um, concentration and relaxation, both totally present. Something like being in love. Um, emotion and thought, body and mind, in tune with oneself and with the world. In the present, but with room for the past and the future by which I mean you're totally in the present, the ball that comes at you like with Beyond's idea of analysis, you're free of memory and desire, but you're in touch with what the background to this situation is, and you're in touch with what the aims are. You might have a target to get, either an actual target or a, a mental target of what would be a good score on this pitch or how, how quickly we have to do it, all sorts of things like that. So you're totally uh, in the present, but the present is informed by the past and the future. Inform, I think, means something of this, though it also means really accommodating dif difficulties, and perhaps being in the zone does that too. But I think of Peterson's great achievement in 2000 and... I don't know if it's 2009 or... Two, I think it's 2011, of scoring a very bad 100 against India. And for him, that was a huge achievement, because until then, he'd seemed to need to be the one who's totally in flow and on top. And he couldn't, or didn't often, score a bad 50 or a bad 100. Some of us did that more often, but, or at least a bad 50. But it, it's quite an achievement. 
and it's a feature of someone being able to stay with without having to magically transform and artificially transform a struggle. The struggle may be because you're not in great top form at the beginning, or it may be because conditions just favour the bowlers and they happen to be bowling really well. So you have to struggle and you need some luck. And I just wanted to mention luck. And we've got Ed Smith here who played for England and Middlesex, and he's written a book about luck. And uh, luck also enters into it, of course. Things have to happen roughly well enough to begin with, usually. Uh, and you, you have to have luck in missing the really good balls or the edge goes between the slips or wider the slips or somebody drops you or the umpire doesn't give you our LBW when it's going six inches over the top of the stumps or whatever it might happen to be. Um, uh, I think I've said enough about the feel of it for you to get a sense of what I want to say. What about proximate causes of being in the zone? Um, I'm thinking of examples like someone being freed up by being in the last chance saloon. Bob Willis against Australia at Headingley in 1981, almost dropped, hadn't done very well in the first innings, consistently bowling no balls, hadn't been very well, seemed to be declining. And in the second innings he took 8 for 43 or 8 for 45, won the test match. Uh, the, the remarkable test match in which both of them scored 100 and, uh, and took six wickets in the first innings. But there was something about that last day when Australia needed 129 to win and the pitch was uneven and the ball was deviating and Bob was completely without confidence and several of us said on the night before over a glass or two of beer, don't think about no balls, we've been bowling lots of them, don't worry about anything only think of bowling fast and straight. Now, those are two good qualities if you have them, by the way, but they're not, and they're not always easy to come by, but we wanted to clear his mind of any other. He wasn't to be sophisticated or clever or try this or try that. He was just to run up and bowl fast and straight, which he did, and the ball was going different heights and occasionally different directions, and he was almost unplayable. He took eight wickets, and we won the match. Um, Enlisting one's anger can sometimes help. I, mean, I think with him, he was very angry with the press. He was angry with the selectors who dropped him and then reinstated him before the match. He was angry with the Australians. He was angry with quite a lot of people. And, um, and he, uh, that seemed to help him too. He bowled with a fierceness that seemed to shove other things, other anxieties or conscious interfering thoughts aside. Relaxation, sometimes even from alcohol. I mean, I remember scoring, going to an all-night party in Cambridge when I was a student, and the next day scoring 150 against Gloucestershire. Now, the trouble with that kind of thing is that one can think along Hume's lines that there's a constant conjunction <laughs> between these kinds of things, which, of course, there isn't. But um, uh, as a proximate cause, it can help to relieve one of anxiety or insecurity. Um, learning from success and widening one's range Tom Cartwright the middle, uh, Warwickshire in England uh, all-rounder and coach uh, used to say if you get to 100 that's when you learn how to bat because that's when you start playing with total freedom and confidence you're relaxed and you can try things out and you can learn what you're capable of doing and help to absorb it into your game. 
course, what I also want to say is it can begin to sound like all spontaneity, all freedom, all relaxation. These things can be are very fine things in their place, but they can also both feel like and actually be looseness or indiscipline. They can lead to mania, they can lead to excesses, they can lead to disaster. And actually, all of this needs to be in place on top of other things which are more consciously controlled. And I remember Juliet Stevenson, the act- actress, actor, saying of her job that she had to work very, very hard consciously to learn the lines, to learn the moves, to discuss the character, the the interactions and all the rest of it. But once she was playing the part, she had to let things be and not try too hard. But it's on the basis of both a general technique and specific preparation. So, what are the central... Am I doing all right? You have five minutes. What are the central features that come together in the zone or in form? One thing I wanted to say is that I think there's something about being part of something bigger than oneself. And I've got two senses for that. One's the ordinary sense, that you can be part of a team in which you are, with which you identify. And I remember a passage in Anna Karenina in which the landowner, Levin, goes haymaking, hay-cutting with the peasants. And they go out on Midsummer's Day and they're out from dawn till dusk which is probably in Russia was about probably about 18 hours and they do it more or less all day except for a break for lunch and a break for uh, beer at tea time and they and he's a novice and he's in a line of people scything and he talks about the ways in which um, the communal activity and feeling part of this team lifts one beyond one's own personal anxieties he talks about the way that singing songs, joint songs together, rhythmic songs, helped in the process of scything. And the scythe is a big thing, and it's not easy to do it if you haven't done it before much. And he spoke about the jokes and the teasing. And he spoke about the tips that he got from his, his sort of leader or mentor, who was called Titus. And he spoke about how at times, if he didn't think about what he was doing too much, his row his scythed row, could be almost as even as Titus's. But there's something about being part of something bigger than oneself. And I think that happens individually too, in this sense, that you have to accept that there's more to yourself than you're consciously aware of at any given time. So you're part of something that's bigger than your conscious self. And you have to have room for that to happen and allow it to happen. If you're in bad form, you probably aren't able to do that. You're consciously thinking of the things you're not doing right, the things you might be doing, the things the bowler's going to do, and all sorts of other things that don't allow this freedom to happen. Tiger Smith was a coach at Warwickshire, and I once scored 74 for Middlesex against Warwickshire in a long time, with a lot of struggle. I had about four or five fours only, and I came off, and he was in his 90s. He was almost blind. He was a great coach. I was recommended him by Tom Cartwright, who knew him very well. He'd been a cricketer for Warwickshire years before, and then their coach. And I said to him, had he got any, could he help me? And he had a, his walking stick, and he said, well, use my walking stick and stand over there and, and stand up and 
play a couple of shots. So I did. And he then said, why? And he came over and held my hand. He said, why are you holding this thing so tightly? And why are you frowning? Are you going to hit it better if you frown? He said. And there's something about that anxious intensity which you think you need to have to hit the ball or to hit it well, which actually is the opposite of the truth. And I remember Ian Botham saying to me once, when I was in this sort of state, and he, he just showed me his batting gloves, and he hit the ball harder than anyone I was playing with at the time, probably harder than most people in the game of cricket. And his, his batting gloves were hardly marked, and just the ends of the fingers of the right hand were slightly worn. So he was holding the bat extremely lightly and hitting the ball out of the ground. Um, now, as I said, this can feel like looseness and can be like looseness, and I could tell you stories about that too. We need a lot more than this sort of sense of freedom or spontaneity. We need um, to, be, to have a well-grooved and well-honed technique which we can rely on so that when we're up against it, we can do roughly the same things more than once. You can groove your cover drive so that when the ball's in the right place, naturally enough, more or less naturally, you play it more or less right. And, of course, even if the ball... One of the great things about good players is that when their technique is being tested to the limit of what they can do, they're still able to hold on to it. It doesn't get too rattled. They don't get too rattled. It doesn't get too ragged. Though the better one's opposition, the more one's technique is challenged. I think there's something about orientation I wanted to mention. Not only a basic technique, but there's something about the orientation to an innings or to a particular situation. Obviously, if you go into play in a 2020 match, you have a different orientation if you go into play in a test match. You've got to do something quickly, you've got to try anything out. You're going to set yourself more frequently, probably, to do particular things. You're going to take a chance on what the bowler is going to do next. In a test match, a long match, you hope to be more free to respond to the, the ball like beyond the psychoanalyst, without too much memory or desire. But nevertheless, I think in test match cricket too, the top level of cricket, that even the best players have an element of orientation. They might orient themselves on a certain pitch to get forward. You know, the pitch of the ball is moving about, it's not bouncing very high, risk of LBW, nip backers, keep low. You're going to be much better off if you can get forward. On another pitch, much more bouncy, Perth or somewhere in Australia, you're going to look to be, look to be. It's a good phrase, look to be. It doesn't mean you, you have to be, but it means you're, if you're in a bit of doubt, that's the way you're going to move. And you'll you be on the back foot. Have your hands high and stand up. Um, there's something about the relationship between the conscious mind and the unconscious mind which I like the, this phrase about. I went to some yoga classes once in India and the yoga teacher said in a very nice sing-song, quiet way, simply watch. And what he meant was, don't tell yourself to do this or that, don't be anxious about doing this or that but watch what you're doing. And I think when you're in the zone or in top form, you watch what you're doing. You check in, you monitor, but you don't intrude and you don't come in at the wrong moment and you don't come down on yourself like a ton of bricks. You're kind of a friendly 
mentor internally. Um, Marion Milner, another psychoanalyst, said about table tennis that the, the, the task required of the conscious mind may often be to stand aside. To stand aside, but to come back in and observe and to check and to notice, I would say. Something about... Should be stopping. Yeah. I'll say a couple more things. Improvisation. <clears throat> Malcolm Gladwell's book, Blink, has some very nice things to say about improvisation. He was thinking about jazz and comedy. And he was saying that the, the one golden rule for improvisation is that the two pe- let's say it's two people involved, the two people more or less say yes to each other. So in other words, if I'm improvising with David here and he says something, in, in, I go with his idea. I don't necessarily think it's the best idea in the world. I don't necessarily agree with it. I may say something, as it were, that takes it in a different direction, but I go with it. A lot of marriages, of course, this is often difficult to achieve, to go with what your partner suggests, and indeed the other way around. But to go with at least a certain distance so that one's open to the other person's idea. And again, I think that's true of the partnership within oneself, within one's own internal figures and within one's aspects of oneself. So in summary, and this is only a part, but in summary, there's bringing together in the team the members of the team, and in the self, the parts of the self. The conscious and the unconscious, the disciplined and the free, the technical and the passionate, the cautious and the risk, defence and attack, passivity or receptivity and activity, watching and doing. I'll just end with a quote from a poem by E. Cummings, I think, You pray about modern poets. You praise the great restraint with which they write. I'm with you there, of course. They use the snaffle and the bit all right, but where's the bloody horse? Uh, But, of course, if there's only horse, you might need a bit of snaffle and a bit. Great, okay. We're going to move straight on, so we hold your horse for the moment. Hold your horses. Do you want me to be your... No, I think I'll jump up. Okay. All right. So, don't get excited. I've got a couple of little slides. It's a small part of my talk. I want to start by correcting you on the source of that last quote, oh, because God. it's the great Roy Campbell. Yes, it is. And I'm only fussing about this because he was from my school, along with Barry Richards, Lee oh. Irvin, and Hashim Amla, all from Durban High School. Thank you. So, uh, good. Thank you very much. I want to focus on this tension uh, that came out a few times in Michael's talk between the idea that in order to be in the zone, you must you must relax, you must be loose, you must empty your mind, and at the same time, you've got to different levels of cricket, different kinds of cricket, orientate yourself in a certain way, as you put it. You've got to. You've got to have a strategy. You've got to have a, uh, a conscious plan. And how do the two things go together? Uh, I want to try and pose this to you almost as a paradox. Uh, uh, the paradox is, is that batting, the execution of the shots, is completely unconscious. 
But given that, how can what's consciously going on in your mind, how can the, the conscious mindset make, make a difference? So that's the paradox I want to raise. And the way I'm going to do this, I'm, I'm going to spend a little bit of time trying to persuade you that batting really is unconscious. I mean, that might sound a bit surprising, but I'll, I'll do what I can to, to convince you that. And then I'll say a bit about, nevertheless, how, how uh, uh, conscious planning, focus, concentration is nevertheless crucial. So I'd like to start with the, the basic facts. of. So we seem to be, despite the title, talking about cricket. And perhaps we need to make no apology for this. Uh, uh, actually, I'll, 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 I'll broaden it out slightly uh, when I can. So the basic facts of timing. So in cricket, not everybody here is an uh, expert cricketer. Uh, the bowlers bowl from about 60 feet away, and they bowl between 50 and 100 miles an hour. So if you, if you do the sums, that means the batsman's got between four-fifths of a second and, at the fastest bowlers, two-fifths of a second, 400 milliseconds, to do something. Whoosh, it's gone. And... Uh, how do they cope? In, in fact, the, 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 it's interesting. A lot of bat ball interception sports have the same kind of figures. In, in, in baseball, so now I'm broadening it out, uh, uh, it's, uh, uh, I think it's also 60 feet away, exactly the same kinds of speeds, uh, up to 100 miles an hour, 90 miles an hour. Uh, uh, tennis, it's a bit faster. The serve can come at 140, but the tennis server is a bit farther away. Uh, Table tennis, it's similar. Squash, it's similar. I mean, the same kind of, same kind of figure. So how, how do the batters cope? Now, in fact, there's quite a lot of research on this, and it's very interesting. So the first thing you're taught when you're in cricket is keep your eye on the ball. But when you do the study of it, and they've done eye tracking a lot in Australia, the Australian sports scientists are very good at this, it turns out that that's not what happens at all the batsman watches the ball until about a tenth of a second after it's left the bowler's hand, and then the batsman's eyes shoot down to where they expect the ball to land, and then they try and use the uh, visual information about the height of the bounce to guide the very fine last movements. Uh, and uh, that's quite a lot of research across many sports, showing that a lot of what the receiver does is based on noting the orientation of the bowlers or servers, uh, body, chest, wrist, and so on. Uh, it's quite plausible. In, in cricket, people talk about good batsmen, better batsmen, having more time. They seem to not be hurried. It's quite plausible. That's because they're reading much more out of what happens before the ball's even let go and getting themselves into the right right position. But it's slightly surprising that, I mean, uh, there was a famous occasion in Australia where uh, an eminent Australian test cricketer, well, I'll name him, it's, uh, Justin, Justin Langer, uh, heard the sports scientist explaining this stuff about the eye shooting down, and he started his question by saying, I don't believe a word of it, because he said he knows that his eyes are on the ball uh, throughout its trajectory, he can see the he can see the seam. He can remember it uh, uh, swerving away. He can remember it cutting back off the pitch. Uh, uh, 
Nevertheless, that's what the research shows. The eyes move. I mean, Langer probably shouldn't have been as uh, surprised as he was. In fact, it's well established in vision science that our eyes are jiggling around all the time. When you're looking at me, you're actually jiggling around. Your eyes are shooting around all the time. When you read a, a page of print, your eyes are shooting around all the time. Nevertheless, I mean, trying to get different things into focus and so on, nevertheless, your uh, visual system constructs a stable picture of what's in front of you and uh, you don't notice all the jiggling, of course. And the same is going on when you're batting. Your brain is constructing a representation of the continued trajectory of the ball on the basis of information that's received as a result of the eyes jumping around in slightly surprising ways. But it seems very likely that this continuous representation, our memory of the ball having a certain trajectory, is constructed a little bit later on for us to remember what happened, maybe to do something different next time, and isn't what guided, what guided the shot. Uh, the stuff about the ice circadian around is quite well known. I'm going to share now with you some more recent research by a young Australian, which I find flabbergasting. I'm, I'm slightly surprised it's not been on the front pages yet, but uh, here's how it goes. I mean, th this supports the idea that what's going on when you're batting uh, against fast bowlers certainly is all unconscious. Uh, this young researcher, David Mann, uh, took off from the idea, some of you may know about it, that, that there's, there's two different streams of visual processing in in the human brain, primate brain generally. There's a, there's a ventral stream kind of goes to the front of their head and it's concerned with uh, classification, colours, uh, uh, identifying objects, uh, fairly high level uh, uh, cognition and it gives you colours and a lot of detail. There's an older, more basic system, the dorsal stream, uh, which is to do with guiding action. It works much faster uh, it uh, is cruder in some ways. Uh, fast, spontaneous action is in general guided by the dorsal stream. Uh, you can guide uh, actions on the basis of ventral stream information. It tends to be uh, you perform rather more slowly. It looks very likely that, that uh, uh, batting is guided by the, the dorsal stream. The dorsal stream is evidence is unconscious. The ventral stream is uh, conscious visual awareness. Uh, crucial thing, the dorsal stream, the one that guides fast action, does not have very fine visual resolution. Uh, it's kind of, all this kind of very fine detail we get is in the ventral stream. Dorsal stream, which is to do with me grabbing things and kind of, uh, uh, is tends to be rather more blurry. So this chap said, well, if, if batting is guided by the dorsal stream, as uh, uh, it looks very likely that it is... Uh, shouldn't matter too much how good your vision if, you, if you're a batsman. So, so he tried it, and he put blurry glasses on batsmen. So this is his representation of what the batsman was seeing in four conditions. On the left, they're just wearing plain contact lenses, equal contact lenses on, to, to control for the fact that they're wearing contact lenses. In other cases, there's slightly blurry, medium blurry, very blurry. Uh, it's, this is 2020 on the left, 2060, 2020, 2020, uh, 180. 
for those of you, that means 20 means 20 feet, and 20, 20 means 20 feet away, things look to you like they do to most people at 20 feet. 20, 60 means things look to you at 20 feet like they do to most people at 60 feet. You're not very good, that's, that's number one. Number two is uh, uh, they look to you like they look to most people at 120 feet, and the one on the right to you like they look to most people at 180 feet. One on the right is you're pretty you're legally right if you're one if you're one on the right. Uh, even the one number one is pretty bad. Uh, you wouldn't be allowed to drive if your if your eyesight was like that. What this chap found out was that at 70 miles an hour bowling, uh, it's only the very very blurry glasses make any difference. You have to le- be legally blind before it makes any difference to you. <laughs> uh, uh, so, the top is how many times you hit the ball at all, the bottom is how many times you hit it in the middle. And good lenses, slightly blurry, pretty blurry, makes no difference much, and it's only the very, you've got to be blind before it makes a difference. Uh, he tried it, that was actually done on a bowling machine, it's this, I mean, I can talk more about these results, but then he tried it with real bowlers because he wanted to get some fast bowlers so here uh, he's got bowlers bowling at 80 miles an hour and the crucial thing to look at is the top one there uh, the performance falls off the red line is the fast bowlers the blue line is long we seen before the, the medium fast and performance falls off with uh, both the most blurry ones but even so it doesn't fall off anything to speak of with the first lot of blurriness. So, first lot of blurriness meant, meant you, you're not able to drive like that, but still, you seem to hit the ball just as well. Uh, so, now I find this quite amazing. Uh, and uh, I spent a lot of time in my late 40s and early 50s fiddling around with contact lenses and glasses because I wasn't getting it in focus anymore. Apparently that wasn't the problem at all. (laughs) So, uh, I hope that's some evidence that what's going on when you bat is not under your conscious control. It's happening much too fast for uh, what you're consciously aware of to make any difference to what you do. So, Now my puzzle then. So if that's the case, how can what you're thinking, what's going through your conscious mind, make any difference to your your performance? Now how am I doing for time? You're fine. How long have I been going? No way. Because I can... can, uh, Okay, okay. I'll... I'll, I'll, uh, uh, I'd like to distinguish three different aspects of this. Uh, One is the fact that being consciously excited, being consciously psyched up is going to make a difference. Uh, The second is uh, how can making a plan, having a strategy, as Michael put it, having a certain orientation, looking to do something, how can that make a difference too? to uh, your performance, your shot selection. Uh, 
And finally, sheer concentration, being focused. Why does that make a difference? And in fact, what I really want to talk about is, is the second two. The, the first one I don't have very much to say about. I mean, it seems to be obvious that, that in certain situations you get psyched up, the adrenaline, starts, the adrenaline starts flowing, and that makes a difference. You can do things that you wouldn't otherwise be able to do. I like, I like the example of Bob, Bob Willis. It's always struck me that, that Botham's contribution to that test match was of the nature of a, a lucky slog, and Willis's is the most amazing perform- sporting performance I've ever seen. There was something very strange. He was completely wild-eyed throughout the whole, the whole innings. Uh, completely wonderful. Uh, so, getting psyched up, uh, of course that makes a difference to how your body's going to perform, what, what hormones are rushing around. But let me now ask the question about uh, how does making a plan, having a strategy, affect the way you, way you behave? I mean, the shots you, shots you play, the way your body performs. And when, I, when I've explained that, I think I'll be able to explain why concentration matters in the way it does. So, I mean, of course, it's clear in cricket that, that it does make a difference. I mean, batsmen bat differently in a, a 2020 match and in a test match, as Michael just pointed out, during the course of a test match, they will bat differently after you've been in for a while. You feel now you can play some shots, and maybe the situation requires you to play some shots, and so you will do different things. I thought Michael was going to talk about premeditated shots, uh, but I think of that as a kind of a rather crude and, in fact, uh, not very advisable special case of the more subtle thing that uh, you decide to go and attack. Or you decide, you know, for the next 20 overs, I'm not going to touch anything outside the off stump. Uh, uh, that's not premeditation, but that's setting yourself to uh, employ a certain strategy, use a certain repertoire of shots, which is different from the strategy, the repertoire you'd have in other situations. How is that done? Well, in fact, perhaps that's not so puzzling if you think about it. I think that conscious uh, reflection uh, decision intention forming often in fact normally affects automatic actions across some temporal distance uh, I mean here's how I, I, I think about it I mean some of you might know some psychology there's a lot of two systems theory there's the old kind of crude systems and then there's system two the sophisticated logical system, I think that applies in behavioural control. I think we have a, uh, an evolutionary old system of behavioural control that uh, operates in the here and now, it's partly biological, it's partly shaped by learned associations, it will choose various bits of behaviour on the basis of which desires are currently active, past experience and what opportunity is available in front of you. It's not a, it's not a bad system, but it's pretty crude. We probably share it with a lot of, lot of uh, other mammals. Human beings also have a much more sophisticated system of behavioural control. Uh, 
we can do much better than this old system because sometimes the situation is complicated, it's not clear what to do, we've got time to reflect. We think the whole thing through, we make some complicated plan. Well, I will first of all uh, uh, go and see my mother in Norfolk and then I'll go to America the month after and uh, that's what I'm going to be doing over the next couple of months. And uh, then you put in place uh, a whole lot of intermediate intentions, I'll buy a ticket, I'll uh, get on the computer next time I have a chance, and, and so on. I think we should think of the sophisticated intention-forming system as, as resetting the automatic system. So somehow, I mean, there's this old automatic behavior control system operates on passing desires and opportunities, and now you have the ability to, to reflect and form a plan and somehow uh, this evolutionarily newer system goes into the old system and re- resets it. And so, and so that kind of solves my second issue in cricket. I mean, nothing very unusual about this, so uh, I, I uh, think about the situation of the match and I decide now's the time to go on the tack and so I reset the automatic system. Whereas until now, any full pitch outside the off stump, I'd watch it go past. Now I'll have a thrash at it. And, uh, and then the ball comes, and uh, I do it. I do it automatically uh, once I see what the ball is doing. But uh, earlier, I've reset my automatic dispositions. So if you think about conscious deliberation affecting action at a distance in the way it normally does, there's nothing terribly surprising about the same thing going on in, in cricket. But I think when one thinks about how that system works, one might also get some insight into why, into why concentration is so important in cricket. Because think of it like this, if all the planning, intention-forming, sophisticated system does is reset the automatic system and then leaves it to itself, the trouble is you'll be open to all the vicissitudes of the old system. Nobody is very clear. I mean, there's Patrick Butlin sitting over there who's a PhD student in King's, and we talk a lot about how exactly does the intention formation system control the automatic system? Does it, does it give you new, some new desires? Does it, does it arrange that uh, different stimuli will uh, be ones to which behaviours are conditioned? It's not quite clear how it does it. But still, however it does it, if you reset the system and then leave it to itself, it'll be open to further resetting by what's going on. And uh, you might start thinking about... Uh, what to have for dinner or you might see some old friend go past and starts you thinking about different things and a lot of the time that won't matter if it's you're going to America and you start thinking about something else or some opportunity comes along and you don't buy your ticket now well that doesn't matter because you can buy it in uh, after supper or something but if you're playing cricket and you start to daydream about uh, what's going on, it's quite likely that some passing influence will, will knock you out of your settled plan. I don't know if anybody here was at the talk I gave 
a few months ago, also with this title, and the theme of the talk was, was Mark Ratprakash at Trent Bridge in 1991 in the third test when he danced down the wick. I mean, it was a, a crucial time of the test. Everything was going fine. England were building a... Well, they hadn't got a first innings leader. They were only 120 for four, but the, Australia had been out for about 180. Ratprakash just had to carry on batting. He had got about 30, and he jumped down the wicket and tried to hit Shane Bourne back over his head and got stuck by Miles. And, uh, uh, and what was going on? I mean, he should have been playing test cricket, not playing a shot like that. Apparently, legend has it, that Shane Bourne had been goading him for overs. He'd been saying, come on, Ramps, you know you want to. <laughs> and, and so there was Ramp Prakash uh, with his plan to bat sensibly and here was somebody putting a different plan into his head and what he needed to do was just to keep his intention in place and keep that controlling the automatic system and he failed to do it. There was a more recent case I just want to so I think choking is to do with this choking is when Remember poor Jan and Novotna uh, in the Wimbledon final? You get, you mean you've been doing this all your life and now you, you're focused and you're doing the right thing and you start thinking about the fact you're about to win Wimbledon and you're not thinking about what you're supposed to be thinking about which is hitting the ball, that's hitting the ball to, to I can't remember her opponent, uh, Steffi Graf, was it? Uh, to the backhand and you start thinking about something else and you lose it. Uh, Ravi Bopara? I was at the second test, no, it was the first test, at the Oval this summer, and he'd been brought back in, and uh, short pitch ball from Dale Stain, and he went back to try and hook it, and then he kind of remembered that he wasn't supposed to be doing that, pulled out the shot, and he got an edge and got caught behind. But the interesting thing is, is Bopara then... then declared himself unfit for the next test, I think, on the grounds that he was having a terrible time in his personal life. And I think that shot was uh, a manifestation of the fact he was finding it difficult to keep in mind exactly what he was doing. He, was, he was, should have been batting in a somewhat different way from the way he normally batted, and he couldn't hold that in place. So, uh, I'll... I'll stop. It, I mean, the idea is, is, is that, that uh, even though uh, the execution of cricket shots is completely unconscious, too fast, automatic, nevertheless, if you think about the structure of action control in general, you can see why it's so crucial to keep your focus on what you're doing. Otherwise, you're liable just to do the wrong thing. <laughs> OK, good. Now, we do have some time, but I do want to just... Uh broke one question to both of you uh, in, ter in terms of the way in which you try to develop your thoughts about the in-the-zone condition. And just to take the point of departure from Michael's distinction between um, being in the zone, which is a sort of experience, it's something one might say something subjective, yeah. and um, being on form, which Barrington apart, one generally thinks of as something objective. You know, you can look at the records and see how well somebody's been playing. That's, that's a matter of being on form. And the subjective thing is being in the zone. And um, one of the things that you said about it was that it sometimes seems to have a, a different temporal character. So it's somebody who has more time 
and uh, certainly in batting and fielding, when you're in the zone, a ball coming very fast is one which somehow, at that moment, you seem to have more time available than you would if you were not in the zone, where everything might seem rushed. So you have an alteration in the character of the event, subjectively, when you're in the zone. And the, um, this will, could be for a, uh, a batsman, where, where uh, not just you may have more time, but the bowler seems to giving you opportunities to hit, rather than threats to getting you out. You can have it as a bowler, where um, the, the whole run-up has a kind of fluency which would be beyond... Um, you're knowing how to put yourself in that condition, the ball going where you want it to go without that being in the domain of something you could uh, intend to do uh, because quite often because, because typically you intend to do it all the time and equally um, as a fielder being able to move yourself to the right place in a time space which seems unreasonably short. So uh, you have these changes in the character of the event of being in the zone, uh, which is beyond being on form. And the question I want to ask you both is whether you can do anything to get in it and whether you can do anything to stay in it once you're in it. Because it seems to me that it sort of comes when it comes and it goes when it goes. And it, I do wonder about... The, the, I mean, it's a crucial moment for the success of your game, ultimately, to get in the zone. But is it, is it something that one can get into voluntarily? So, in turn, Michael first. Well, um, yes, I, I like the, the phrase, the wind bloweth where it listeth. Uh, and, and so we talk about creativity as well as freedom or spontaneity or in the zone. Um, well, long term, perhaps one can. Mm-hmm. One can start to notice when one is allowing one's conscious mind to try to do too much or of the wrong kind. One's coach, I have very mixed feelings, and coaches are very mixed items. You know, They can be wonderful and they can be not very helpful, I think. But mm-hmm. one could imagine, at least, a wonderful coach who would help you to notice that. And you could perhaps adjust um, your your orientation, which we both talked about. Um, and you might have to work harder in the preparatory stages. You know, I remember I remember talking to a young cricketer who was extremely talented and ha- a professional cricketer. Um, and who had um, a great eye. He was also a good sportsman, other sports. But he didn't have a very good technique. And I said to him at the end of one season, and he, came, he was found out when he played the first team, he didn't score any runs. And I said, I don't think, you know, I've got a great eye and everything. Well, it may not be an eye, but whatever it is. It's, <laughs> it's still an eye. It's still an eye. It's, it's unconscious, but it's an eye. Right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, and... Uh, and um, but I don't think you're going to survive at this level unless you work on your technique. And he didn't. And he didn't. Um, anyway, so, yes, but it's very difficult to know how to do it. All right. What, what, about, what do you think? Do you think you can set yourself to be in the zone? No, I think this... What's the thing you have? The wind, where the wind blows? I yeah. mean, uh, so, I mean uh, so even we sometimes feel 
at our level of cricket. I mean, I can remember batting once or twice where I could just do what I wanted to do and it was easy. And, uh, uh, but I think it's a relative thing. I mean, uh, I'm never going to be in the zone batting against good bowlers. And so I think what you're talking about is just those, those uh, episodes where you play very well. And uh, uh, it's going to happen sometimes and presumably you're focused and you're psyched up and uh, and you've but got the right really plan and, and, and somehow you're, you're, everything is, you're feeling well I mean your body's good uh, Mike, Michael said at the beginning that maybe the in the zone experience might be an illusion of being in the zone do, do, no. do you so, want to recognise uh, that there are genuine cases of it in which, in which this uh, character of the event for you seems no, to no, no, no of course I mean I, I just mentioned I, I, can, I can remember very well uh, Playing for some club side, and I, you know, I scored seventy without even trying. I mean, I mean, it's not a record, but I mean, no, it was just very easy. Nothing happened. I, mean, I just. Uh. Yeah. So, I've read uh, a thriller, a detective story by Ted Dexter, and it's it's quite quite dark in some ways. And part of the darkness is that the hero has lost it. Now, he's still test captain. He's still calling, scoring test centuries. But it's hard work. Whereas it used to be just he, he was in charge. I mean, and, and TEDx obviously at some point in his life felt that he was not the batsman he used to be. He wasn't scoring those famous 180s so, so easily. So I think it's just for each, each sports person, there's a Episodes where they're better than themselves, and they all remember that, all right. right. And I, I don't think it's anything more than that. Okay, good. Right. Well, now we have uh, we have about twenty-five minutes for questions and contributions from you. Uh, we've got a microphone. I think is that right? We've got one and two. Yeah. So if you just indicate with your hand, I'll point you out, and we'll, we'll take in turns around speakers. So we'll start here, yeah, and then you. I have to say uh, one thing, and then a question. For the benefit of older participants here, I don't know what's going off out there. You've got three batsmen up there, and you're talking about only batsmen can be in the zone. As it seems to me, bowlers can just as much be in the zone. Well, there you are. Bowlers can just as much be in the zone. You were talking about Willis, which is 8 for 43, and all this stuff about you know, the mood he was in. And if you look at various extraordinary bowling performances from bowlers who haven't done such before or since... Um, I would think that bowlers can be just as much in the zone as batsmen. Could you say a little bit about that, what you think that is? Because I think with batting, one of the things that people feel is, when they're in the zone is that the bowler is literally offering them things to hit, whereas when they're not in the zone, they're, they're doing their best to stay in. When, when, it, when, you, when it's a bowler, do you think there's a kind of phenomenology, as it were, of the, of the situation for a bowler? Is it just every... Is it a running thing, or...? I think, I mean, obviously it's different because the bowler bowls and the batsman, you know, can do whatever the batsman does. And if the batsman's in the zone, then, as you say, a very good ball, he can still hit it. As Whereas I think what a bowler can do, he can just, as it were, get the whole situation and understand how he can bowl well in that situation. And there's no guarantee, you know, he doesn't get eight wickets in eight balls, but that equally a batsman in the zone doesn't get a four for every ball. But he can bowl for, you know, however long he bowls, for however many wickets he gets. And it's just, 
he feels he can control the situation, and it's his situation. Um, now, the fieldman may drop a lot of catches, and he may end up with, you know, four for 61. But that happens to me a lot, of Brightwell comes Sotwell. So I'd be interested to hear if you think that it's equally true, although in a different modality for bowlers, as it is for batsmen. And if not, why not? Do you have views on the, the, the bowler in the zone and the batsman I, I, in the zone? I, I wasn't not talking about bowlers. I wasn't a bowler. And I, and I mentioned Willis. I, it's, yes, it's equally, equally true. And, and of course there is a difference, as you've implied, that as you implied that you... you you initiate something as the bowler. Mm. You respond to something as the batsman. Um, but, but of course, the bowler is also responding to the kind of bats, batting that he's been subjected to, or that he thinks he's going to be subjected to. I saw several bowlers who were terrified of bowling at Viv Richards, for example. <laughs> so the, there is a difference between bowling. I mean, this thing to do with the bowler initiating, which is that there's an extra danger for the bowlers, doesn't apply to batsmen, is that you're in danger of starting to think about what you're doing. And then you can get the yips. No batsman has ever got the yips. But, uh, well, that's... But don't forget Gavin Hamilton. Medium pacer, fast medium he effectively got the ips. And in my cricket, I've known some uh, medium pace bowlers to start thinking about how they're moving their feet, and that was the end of it. I have stuttering problems occasionally. Yes. It's but, but does anybody know why the yips affect left-arm slow bowlers and not right-arm slow bowlers? That's one of the great mysteries of life. Yes. We've got to move on. There's a question up there. Yeah. Hi. Um, I wanted to um, talk about an issue which was brought up earlier, and Michael specifically spoke about and it was the idea of mimicking um, a team player or how you think um, a member of your team is going to perform um, when you said about catching the ball. How would you relate this to somebody who's in a sport which is um, one person, so athletics specifically, uh, somebody who's running and their performance is mainly based on them as an individual um, and say in that case, if it's a 400 metre sprint, how fast they're going to perform as an individual compared to the other people here in the race. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Lovely. I didn't quite catch Well, let me think about that. You, one of your examples was uh, um, becoming the other. A certain way, of in, 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 as a captain, you'd anticipate what might happen to try to get on top of the situation. You were becoming the other. How, is there, what, is there in, in anything analogous? this bodily becoming that would be involved in an individual sport, like just trying to run as fast as you can 400 metres and beat the other people? Or, or is, I mean, is there any becoming something that might be involved in that case too? That's very interesting in the development of a, of a let's say, a batsman or a bowler. <laughs> uh, how do you model yourself? You know, I presume you model yourself by becoming somebody. Like when my um, son was about five, poor fellow, he started to bat a bit like me. But he also started to bowl a bit like Vincent van der Beyle, who was playing for Middlesex at the time, terrific. But he, he, he he didn't consciously try and do it, but he ran up in a way that was very... You, you wouldn't miss it. It was Vincent van der Beyle. And uh, he, he did various things that people would say... So you, you, you're constant in learning things, 
we model ourselves on other people, I think. It's one of the ways we learn. So now, whether that happens at a later level, I mean, copying is often a bad thing when you're getting very good. You have to do it your own way. But you might just copy, you might just imbibe, internalise some little extra movement or stylish thing of another player. And that may be true of the athlete. I don't know. That may just interfere with what they can do well themselves. I, I don't know the answer. It's an interesting this question. It's a wonderful question. Okay, we had... Uh, we, well, yes, okay, one here and then over here. So one here first. Hi, thanks. Um, I was a former RAF pilot, and a lot of what you've talked about today, uh, I can draw direct analogies with my career flying. Um, but one difference was that we trained, trained, and trained so that we got ourselves into the zone for every operation that we flew. And incidences of choking or um, the yips were, were very rare uh, to, be, to be almost non-existent. And so my question really is, do you think that uh, top-level sports can develop training programs that will be uh, sufficiently, um, you know, sufficiently of, of sufficient quality so that top-level sportsmen could regularly get into this zone and therefore achieve better results? I have a... Thank you. I mean, I've got a thought about, about this. I, I was talking to somebody about these issues a couple of days ago, and we were talking about racing driving. Racing driving, they've got to have a strategy, they change the strategy, they've uh, got to concentrate. But somebody's talking to them in the mic, I mean, on the radio and giving them advice, and you think, well, how can they concentrate on what they're doing instead and one thought we had was, well, in that case, you're really not liable to be distracted because it's so imperative that you do what you need to do right now. You're going towards a corner at 180 miles an hour. Uh, automatic control is going to take over and stop you being distracted. And I imagine it's the same if you're flying a plane, that uh, it's too important to let yourself be distracted. And that's why there's no question so I'm thinking just about the keeping focus aspect of it and different sports make different demands I mean I think cricket batting is very extreme I mean somebody might have to bat for hours and hours and keep concentration all the time and not everybody can do that. And in fact, I suspect very few people can do it. I, I, mean, I mean, you said your chap didn't have the technique, but there must be many people you know who, who just don't have the concentration. Uh, and there's something, well, there's concentration. There's something about grooving your technique, isn't there? So that you, you mm. I mean, what, learning how to do something difficult... You, you need to be able to do it all. And but, but so, well, I mean, of course, but I was taking that as given. It's I mean, given. I mean all, anybody yes. who's, a, who's a top sportsman, top physical anything, has spent their 10,000 hours developing yes. these yes. amazing, amazing yes. skills. Uh, otherwise, they wouldn't, wouldn't be there. Right? Is, is there anything to be, mm. to be said about sport being competitive? I mean, presumably you're flying the plane, you're not actually having a race with anyone, or you're not trying to be defeated, but no one's trying to defeat you or knock you yeah, off your... Oh, you were. Oh, you were. <laughs> I, 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 
You will. Yes. <laughs> Take that back. I was thinking of BA. Okay, uh, question over here. Thinking about the, I'm sure you're right, Mike, the thing about form being different to the zone. And it, the difficult thing is that they may manifest themselves as scoring lots of runs, but they come from very different places. I'm trying to think about that, I, I would think about form as something much more assertive, much more ego-based, where I'm going to impose my will on the day, I'm in great form, I'm going to do this as well. I think there's a much more fundamentally mysterious element to being in the zone, which I think probably if we're talking about in that extreme version, people don't do very often. The sportsmen I know who are really honest about it say they aren't in the zone very often, maybe a handful of times in their career. So I don't think it is something that, however well you train, you're not going to do it every Tuesday or every Saturday. But the question I had was, I loved your series of oppositions and conscious and unconscious and technical and free um, uh, passive and receptive. One word you, di you didn't mention, which I've become very interested in, is authenticity. Sportsmen spend a lot of their time training to act, to pretend, to project confidence. It's a vital part of their, one of their weapons. And yet, there's also, a, uh, to an extent, a sportsman or a sportswoman is also trying to become something closer to an artist. And they're trying to discover who they really are. And their very greatest days will probably be when they feel most in tune with some kind of authentic version of, the, of their character. So how can you marry those two things? It's almost one day you think, I've got to act today. I feel low. I've got to pump up my tires and assert myself. And other days you say, no, 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 get out of the way. Just be true to who you are. It seems quite a difficult balance, that one. Is that a kind of selflessness as well, though? Because I think that in the zone thing is like you, that you, are, at, you are completely out of the way in that, in that moment. So it's, it's attuned to yourself, but in a... In, in a how, how would you describe it, Michael? The, the self-relation involved in, in I the zone? Know, I can't quite get my head around um, it all. I mean, I, I didn't quite get the first thing you said about form being more imposing yourself on something. I was, describe, I was thinking of form as somebody just being in good form, and it's, it's, a more, it's, it's to be detected, as you said earlier, more in an objective way. And of course, it's subject, you have your own view of it too. Um, um, I think that it's interesting that the performance and the strut and, the, and, the, and what I was trying to say earlier about identification and learning from other people you know, and, and sort of entering into somebody else's body mindset a little bit to learn. I tried to bet like Viv Richards once, it wasn't very successful. But, but you, can, you can pick up a little bit from something, you know, the sort of um, the, 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 the great the stride forward into the ball. You know, if, you, if, you, if you tend to hang back, you can, you can... So is that being authentic or is it broadening one's own technique or is it merely copying? But I, I wonder... Here. I think there's a dimension that we're forgetting, which is that some people are just really very good and they're better than everybody else. I mean, this business of imposing yourself, being in command, uh, some people do, some people can't. I remember seeing Gary Sobers being interviewed. It must have been in the 80s. And the interviewer said, well, who do you think is the, the great batsman? What does it take to be a great batsman? And he said it was, you know, imposing your will on the bowls. And, and they said, so who's, who's the person now? And the interviewer said, Alan Border. And Sobers said, who, who? And if you said Alan Border, I mean, Alan Border had then, I think, had the, the record number of test runs. And Sobers just laughed. He said, no, no, that's not what I'm talking about at all. So, 
so somebody can have this kind of command and uh, uh, authenticity just by being really very good. I mean, and others, it's never going to be given to us to. Uh, I, I don't yeah. want to, to be like, unless, unless we find the right level. Uh. I mean, I, I was yeah. thinking yeah. the difference between yeah. grittiness and genius. Actually, that yeah. I mean, Border, of course, was a terrific, terrific player. Of course, wonderful player. But he he wasn't a he wasn't the person you would say there's a, a fluent person in the zone off and in, a, in an obvious way not like Sobers you'd see Sobers play you'd only got to see him play a few shots and you'd know you're in, in the presence of someone different from everyone else um, and with this sort of great elegance and fluency and relaxation and charm of play whereas Border you'd say here's a gritty tough dour brilliant Australian and you know it'd be a great as opposed to this languid elegant Free. But now, would, would, would it, given what Ed was saying, though, if there was a dimension of authenticity yes. about it, then, yes. then we shouldn't say that Border no, no, is in no. any sense somebody who could be less capable of being in the zone than the or less, or less authentic for that. Yes, matter. yes. So, and let's take off a bit maybe the argument over form. Um, but how, how do you... Well, first of all, you, you said you thought it might be very rare. Yeah, I, I, I think very rare. I think there would... I think my I can't avoid the distinction. Actually, the distinction yeah. I was trying to say was there were days when I arrived at the ground, I'm got, I've got to get runs, and sometimes that worked. Mm-hmm. You know, I have to, I have to find someone within me the ability to assert myself. That isn't. That was never analogous with being in the zone. Being in the zone was much more like no anxiety, very very little anxiety. Mm-hmm. All I have to do is remove obstacles and just let things happen, and I would say that was pretty rare. To be honest, being in form actually was, you know, was reasonably common. Isn't like being out of form. Isn't, there, isn't, there a, isn't there an anxiety still hanging around, which is that you're going to fall out of the zone? Not on that particular day. Okay. Maybe the next day. <laughs> yeah. right, anyway, enough from me. Yeah. Okay, we've got a question. Question there, and then here. So. Thank you. You just turned it off. <laughs> Sorry about that. When we're talking about being in the zone as opposed to being in form, are we talking about something that's transcendent and perhaps even spiritual? How are you doing? No. Michael, yeah. No, I mean, maybe, maybe there is something a bit like that. I mean, that, that's what Ed's saying in a way. It's, it is a spirit that comes over us or into us and takes us over and we have very little to do with it. Mm. And we don't psych ourselves up. We don't orient ourselves. We don't work at it. We don't pump ourselves up. We're not acting in any sense. We're just doing and being. And there does seem something like what people would describe as spiritual about that. That seems like a helpful addition. Yes, I agree with that. What about you, David? So I'm, I'm very down-to-earth and unspiritual, and I think all we're talking about is playing very well. And I think we're forgetting it's, it's, it's relative to the level. So, so, uh, but playing very well is something that, you, that, that is uh, an objective fact about what's going on. What we're interested in is something going on for you as the player when this is happening. Quite. So any particular player at a given level will sometimes find they're playing much better than they normally do and they will remember it and it's, it's a terrific memory. It's very exciting. I mean, I, I, do you play golf at all? 
I'm sorry, I don't want to lower, lower the tone, but, but you, 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 play, you play golf and you know, suddenly you're just hitting the ball on the green, getting two putts, par after par, and you think this is a terribly simple game and then it all goes away for another five years. I mean, uh, it, of course that happens. But, but just, I mean, just about you know, coming to the cricket ground, county cricket, and uh, sometimes it will all go well and often you have to work at it. But if you think of top rank overseas players, they come along and they score score very freely at that level of cricket because... I think uh, that there could yeah. be something really important. They're in the zone all the time at that level. So right. if, if, yeah. let, let's say that what is happening mm-hmm. is that somebody is playing really very well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well then, why shouldn't it be that there's something that it's like to be in the condition of playing very well and that's what we just call being in the zone and that's it. Yes, but I don't remember it being any different from, look, I can just flick this past point with a flick of my wrist and isn't that great that I can do this for the moment? Uh, I don't... Was everything vibrant? Did I see the ball bigger? But the the, the dimension of it that's odd is that I don't know why it's happening and I don't know if it's just going to go away again in a minute. It is. It is. (laughs) Uh, Okay, so where were we? Uh, There, yes, the lady there. Yeah. Up, Up two steps. Hello. Um, this isn't really going to be about cricket, I'm afraid. Um, but I wanted to ask about the question of, um, of kind of desire. Uh, like, I write about tennis a lot, and one of the cliches that it's really hard to avoid is talking about somebody who, you know, wants it too much, who has that kind of, I think you called it anxious intensity. And, I mean, how, how does that relate to being in the zone? I mean, if you're... I don't think I've ever been in the zone in my life, so I don't know what it feels like. But, I mean, if you're in the zone, are you kind of, like, almost in a kind of, like, state of freedom from desire where you're not really concentrating on your kind of objective and, you know, or or does it need to have, you know, is it related in some way? Is it fueled by that? Does that make sense? Yes, it makes makes sense. I don't don't know what to say. Well, only that I come back to Ed's distinction because it sounds more like... um, it, it sounds like those occasions where you play well but don't have to psych yourself up or don't find yourself telling yourself things all the time or you don't find yourself uh, having to intervene consciously in order to make something happen. Um, so, I, And I can sense that difference. I, f- I f- feel it's a real difference. And um, uh, so, so I don't agree with David that, that it's just a matter of playing well. Though I, I do think that, you know, although Ed says you're, one's very rarely in it, I can see many gradations in it. And sometimes one touches it for a few minutes mm. or touches it with a few shots or a few balls or whatever it is, bowling, I mean. And, and sometimes one doesn't touch it at all. And sometimes one still plays well, but it's, it seems like a more, a more uh, effortful event. But I think there's, I mean... Different sports have different kind of rhythms, and tennis is quite striking in the way that there come the big points, and uh, and the best players will raise their game at that point. Yes. I mean, it's not quite the same at cricket. Maybe I mean now and then, yes. uh, you've got to score a certain number of runs at, at a certain pace, and, and some others on the other side too. But I, th- I mean, I would think it's a matter of 
the adrenaline. I mean, that kind of just body tone, whatever excites you. And some people will get more excited in the right way in this crucial moment. Uh, uh, other people will not enjoy it. Uh, they want to win. Yes, I think there's de- definitely a, a phenomenon of some kind of performance anxiety <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all through life. Uh, where are we? Here, yeah. Thanks very much. Um, so you talked a lot about orientation and focus and mm. being psyched or pumped up. And I just wonder if we're underplaying the, uh, the persuasiveness or the kind of persuasiveness, persuasiveness of people around you in a team or a coach. Um, because those things seem to be um, something that are affected by a coach or, or, or people you trust in a team. I'm thinking specifically about Ivan Lendl mm. and about how he's done great things for Andy Murray. Um, in terms of fewer drop serves, getting to kind of play the points as they as they are, mm-hmm. fewer second serves, mm-hmm. um, and those kind of human relationships, really. Um, so I guess if, if we could talk a little bit about the, the times when people are in form and do they coincide when you are most happy and you, you most respect the people around you? Michael, are you beginning to talk well, about Well, I, I just touched on that, and I, I think the answer is yes. I, mean, I, I know patients who feel sometimes that there's, they're with somebody, me, who's actually not superior, not highly critical, not um, looking down on them, uh, not having too many expectations of them, and they're not in some uh, humiliated state of mind, nor are they too arrogant either, because that can interfere, and they can feel, we can talk about this, we can feel free, and they can feel uh, creative, and they can feel that their things come out of them in a natural sort of way that's, that feels expanding of themselves. So, yes, I think the kind of figure one has, either with one literally, like a coach, or in one's mind, makes a lot of difference to one's freedom and capacities. So, I mean, part of it is this thing I keep on harping on, in forming a a strategy and then sticking to it and clearly Lendl has done that for for Murray but you also mentioned team the context of a team and one thing that interests me is is this business of forming a strategy and adjusting your strategy at different points in the game isn't really feasible in the same way in team sports you can't during the course of the game a football match a rugby match decide it's time to go on the attack or something like that without telling the rest of your team. So, I mean, in team sports, all the planning has to be done beforehand or at half time. And I think that adds a direct extra dimension that, that's true, to, to individual support. In, in uh, team sports, too, yeah. there are collective moments of willing or, you know, of... Uh, yeah. You aren't um, making the mistake of thinking cricket's a team sport, are you? No, I, I was thinking about football, actually, okay. in, in a football match where uh, teams make movements which are synchronised, which weren't planned, yeah. but may... Uh, be attuned to the condition of the game. I don't think it's an, a, something that only individuals can do in, in that Most, sort of way. Yeah. But anyway, we have, I'm afraid, run out of time. Uh, so um, thank you, Michael. Thank you, David. And thank you all for coming and giving your question too. So let's start.